How's everyone doing? Good. Good? <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> All right. All right, so, me too. Uh, so, uh, our plan is to talk about the turning today and then next time to move on to uh, the essay called what are, what are Poets For? And then with any luck, that's a very long essay, What Are Poets For? With any luck, we'll get through it. It'll be clear what poets are for and then we'll go <laughs> find out what one of them did, namely Hölderlin. Um, I just think we should sort of keep ourselves open to the possibility that we, it will take longer than we are planning. But still, that's that's what we're hoping to do. Uh, and today we want to. Today I want to talk about the turning. I've spent all day, probably like you guys, struggling with the turning. And um, uh, I think I can say a couple of things, but I'm not sure how many or how well. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try them. Uh, I think it's clear. One thing we can say. One, one thing we have to say. I guess I've said this before, but in an introduction to this essay, we, we need to say it again. Uh, the turning, dikera, as it's as it's used in Heidegger scholarship, refers to two different things. It's the same word, and it refers to two different things. One of the things it refers to is the turning in Heidegger's own work from the early work to the later work, the turning away from um, uh, fundamental ontology and towards whatever it is he's doing that we're now struggling with. Uh, so, so that's one word, that's one way in which the word gets used to refer to a turning in Heidegger's, in what Heidegger's own conception of his, of his project. Lots of interpretive issues about, uh, you know, uh, the relation between the later work and the earlier work, and some people may, you know, try to claim that the later work is just a working out of ideas that were implicit in the earlier work and so on. But standardly, we distinguish between the early Heidegger and the late Heidegger, and the ter- one way to use the turning is to characterize the move from the one project to the other. But that's not at all what this essay is about. Uh, so if you hear people talk about the turning in Heidegger's thought, uh, it could refer either to the turning in his conception of his project or to this essay, which uh, is about um, is about a way the culture, or in particular an understanding of being in a culture, can develop itself, can turn away from its own destining and into another another understanding of being, a new mode of revealing. And we've seen, uh, at least uh, I've told you, and I guess we've seen some evidence of it, that, that Heidegger uh, has a story about the way, about uh, the, the various epochs in the, uh, in the history of being in the West. And now what we're interested, what he's interested in, is what happens in the move from one epoch uh, in the history of the West to the next. But in particular, he's interested in this essay in how one how a culture can make the move 
from the very particular understanding of being that we're in, the technological understanding of being, the essence of which is enframing, how we can, how our culture can make the move from our understanding of being to some new understanding of being. So a lot of the details of this essay are um, sort of caught up in the particularities of the understanding of being that, that we're in now, and framing, uh, and its, its particular features, and the particular difficulties and possibilities that it presents us with. So the, the goal of the, of the essay then is, is to discuss the possibility of a turning in the culture out of the technological understanding of being to some other understanding of being. And the, and the real question is, how could such a turning come about? What roles do various people in the culture play in bringing it about or in its coming about? In particular, what role does the thinker play? He's interested in that. What is it like for the culture when it's going from a particular understanding of being to some other understanding of being. And one sort of side thing that he's interested in is how does this story that he's giving differ from all the other stories about uh, the history of the West that have ever been given? Okay. So that's the, that's the goal of the essay. And I'll just say um, sort of briefly to... to wet your whistle um, two things one is that uh, he's got an interesting kind of metaphor at, it just goes by in one sentence uh, but he says he says going from one destining of being to another is something like getting over grief he says this on page 39 here, his name for moving, for being sent from one understanding of being to another is a restoring surmounting. I take that, I take it that's because you're doing something like restoring the understanding of, an understanding of being by surmounting, restoring one. That's to say, you're bringing back out of the sort of history, uh, and, or various bits of history and understanding of being that surmounts the one that you're now in. So it's a restoring surmounting. Uh, and he says it's similar to what happens when in the human realm one gets over grief or pain. So, and I think he may, it may be that he has in mind uh, Kierkegaard here, who's very interested in the possibility of Grief in, in the experience of grief in the individual case. In particular, he's interested in what it is to overcome the death or the loss of a loved one who was so important to you that you got your very identity in relation to that loved one, in terms of your relation to that loved one. And... Uh, and Kierkegaard talks about this kind of grief, and he says there are various there are various responses to it. But one thing becomes clear: if you do manage to go through the process of grief and come out the other end, you come out a different person 
you have a different identity, a totally different understanding of what it is to be you, and uh, part of what's characteristic of that totally different understanding of what it is to be you, if you go through it in what Kierkegaard considers the right way, is that it becomes a part of your history that you were that you did once understand yourself in relation to this other person. But you don't long for that anymore. It's not something that you now see yourself in terms of. It's something that was there, that was an important part of what's there, that's now changed the way you see the world, but the way you see the world is as a different person. And I think that Heidegger may have in mind when he uses this metaphor of grief, going through grief for pain, I think he may have in mind at the level of the whole culture that kind of phenomenon. You retain some sense of the previous importance of the understanding of being that you've now surmounted, now gotten beyond. Uh, But your understanding of what it is to be you Indeed, your understanding of what it is to be anything at all is now totally and irretrievably different from uh, from uh, the, the previous understanding of being. So you stand upon this previous understanding of being. It's one now one of the resources. One resources a bad term. It's now a <laughs> very bad term. It's now one of the um, bits of your history. Uh, from which you can, on the basis of which you can understand things, but you're a totally different, you're not defined by it entirely in the way that you used to be. So I think that's one interesting thing. So just a metaphor to sort of wet your whistle. He's got this idea of a transformation in the culture that's like the transformation in an individual when they, in a healthy way, go through grief over the loss of a loved one that was so important that they understood themselves in terms of their relationship to it, come out the other end and have a new understanding of who they are, a new identity. Uh, it's This is a... Um, one of the things that's characteristic, and I think is you can understand in a sort of helpful way through this analogy, is that there's no telling who you're going to be when you come out the other end until you've gone through the process of transformation. You couldn't predict it, either logically or through other bits of your history or metaphysically. There's just no, there's no substitute for going through the process of grieving and coming out the other end and having a new understanding of who you are and what you're about and what your identity is. And I think that Heidegger thinks that's true about the cultural case too. There's no way that a culture that's going through this turning, a culture that's going through this change in its own understanding of being, uh, could predict, or even could, after the fact, have retrodicted uh, what it was in virtue of what, what they're about to what they're about to become. And uh, Heidegger says uh, that that means that you can't account for this turning in the destining of being. That's to say the transformation of the understanding of being in any logical, historiographical, as a logical, historiographical, or metaphysical progression. So he says, um, just following from where I was reading on 39, but the surmounting of a destining of being, here and now the surmounting of and framing, which is what we're struggling with, 
Uh, each time comes to pass out of the arrival of another destiny. There's, in the individual case, some new way of understanding what you're about. Maybe a new commitment, a new love, a new, you know, way of understanding yourself in relation to someone else. Uh, the arrival of another destiny, a destiny that does not allow itself either to be logically and historiographically predicted or to be metaphysically construed as a sequence belonging to a process of history. Right. So you can't do what Hegel tried to do and give this once more. Right? You can't do what Hegel tried to do and give this metaphysical story about the progress of history. Um, you can't uh, give any kind of logical account. You can't even give a kind of narrative historiographical reconstruction the decline and fall of the, you know, of the Roman Empire. You, can, you can't do that because that's going to mischaracterize what it was like to have gone through these transformations. It's going to retroactively make them seem more necessary, more obvious, and more logical than they could possibly have been at, at the time. Okay. Uh, so that I think that's the I think that's the goal of the essay is uh, to show what the possibility for the transformation in the understanding of being is for our culture at this moment in our in our history. Now, um, I want to go back to the very end of the question concerning technology, because as I mentioned before, these essays were given as lectures, um, and they're, they're related to one another. So at the end of the question concerning technology... He is preparing us for what what we're gonna what we're gonna learn in um, in the turning. And if you go if you turn to page thirty three, um, you'll see that Heidegger's making the point that uh, and framing the particular mode of revealing. That's the essence of the technological age that we live in is, as he says, ambiguous in a lofty sense. It's uh, both, and we've, we've said something about this, but we need to say more and, and in more detail. It's both a danger, indeed it's the supreme danger, and it's also a saving power. And uh, as we've seen before, he thinks that this is the right interpretation of this enigmatic passage from uh, from a poem by Hölderlin. So at the top of 33, he says, The essence of technology is in a lofty sense ambiguous. Such ambiguity points to the mystery of all revealing, i.e. of truth. On the one hand, in framing challenges forth into the frenziedness of ordering, that blocks every view into the coming to pass of revealing and so radically endangers the relation to the essence of truth. We need to say more about that and I have something to say, but roughly that that means that in framing as a kind of challenging forth to order, to reveal everything as resources that are orderable and optimizable to be dealt with in the most efficient and economical way possible. Um, and framing as that mode of revealing uh, 
in an important way, cuts off the possibility of all other modes of revealing. And I'm getting clear. We've talked about this some. I'm getting clearer about how it does this, I think, I hope. Uh, And how it does this in a way that's different from what's happened in all the other epochs in the history of, of being in the West. So that's a danger. Every mode of revealing hides itself. That's to say it has to withdraw as a mode of revealing in order to let things become intelligible. The background practices, if you were attending to them, wouldn't allow you to, to understand things as intelligible by means of them. So every mode of revealing uh, has to withdraw uh, and uh, every mode of revealing therefore hides itself. But in framing is special in that as a mode of revealing, it blocks out the possibility of every other mode of revealing. Or at least, if it doesn't do that at the start, that's its destining. That's what it's heading towards. That's what it's intending to become. It's got a kind of teleology. These these uh, understandings of being themselves have a kind of a way of developing themselves. And that's what in framing is heading towards. It's heading towards cutting off the possibility of understanding any other mode of revealing as a mode of revealing. That's the supreme danger. Yes, yeah, Celine? I just have a question about the word destining. Does it mean um, like being led towards a particular point? Like, What's the difference between this and destiny? So destiny, if, uh, it, I mean, destin, destining is a process. Yeah, that's right. right. So, and destining is... His name, we'll go for, through this in, in just a second, but Destin Ning is his name for the way the practices gather and maintain and preserve themselves. So his idea is that uh, anything that's of any sort of ontological importance has an essence, but its essence isn't static. It's dynamic. It develops in a certain way. And the background practices are like that. They develop in a certain way. Not uh, by my doing anything or your doing anything or any particular person's doing anything. But just because that's what background practices in social cultures do. They're not static. Uh, Think about, um, I mean, just as a simple example, think about, uh, you know, the social graces. They develop. They develop in a particular context. What counts as socially appropriate to do develops in a group context, maybe in your uh, maybe in your house. You know, you, so you live in the same house for three years, let's say. There you go, at sophomore year, there's one group that makes up the makes up the people who live in the house, and there's a social dynamic and what counts as cool, what counts as appropriate, what counts as the right way to act is well understood after a while by all the people who live there. But it's not static. By the time you're a senior, people act in a slightly different way. What counts as cool, what counts as appropriate, what counts as the right way to act is no longer what it was. And that's not through any decision that any individual made. That's not through, although it's, although it, if there weren't individuals, it couldn't happen. So it's not up to some individual or through, and it doesn't happen as a result of a particular person's will to control what counts as cool. It happens because the practices themselves develop in social contexts. That's the way social contexts are. And 
Every background understanding of being in a whole culture is like that, he says. It's not static, it's dynamic, and furthermore, it's got a kind of telos. It's heading towards something. And if you can understand what it's heading towards, then you'll understand its essence. Or, as he sometimes says, it's essencing. So, destining is the way that the the background practices have of preserving and maintaining and developing themselves. His name for this is gathering. The background practices gather in a particular way. uh, And there's a kind of uh, development of the, of the way the background practices gather. And as a philosopher, or he thinks, I mean his kind of philosopher anyhow, you can try to say what the essence of a particular understanding of being is by saying what it's heading towards, what the background practices are heading towards. And that's what he thinks he's doing within framing. Does that help a bit? Okay, good. So, so the background practices uh, for in framing are heading towards uh, this blocking out of every other uh, mode of revealing, of every other understanding of being. So we, we need to see in a little bit more detail why that's different from other modes of revealing. Uh, and, and we'll do that in a bit. Uh, but then on the other hand, and that, but, and that's the danger, that's the severe danger. It's, it's the most severe danger that it's gonna block out every other understanding of being, every other mode of revealing. And when it does that, uh, well you can see why it's a danger. Once it does that, there's not gonna be any further possibility of turning from one understanding of being to another. We will have, in an important sense, reached the last stage of history. If in framing develops itself in the way that it's destining to. Right? If in framing finally, okay, it hasn't done it yet, and that's why we're at a crucial point in history. But if it's allowed to, if in framing comes to blot out every other mode of revealing, and make it seem absolutely obvious to everyone living in the culture that everything, including ourselves, are properly understood as resources to be optimized and made efficient and made more economical. Then we will have reached the last stage of, of history precisely because we won't any longer be historical beings. We won't be what we in essence are Namely, he thinks, beings that have this special relationship to being, this relation of safeguarding being, preserving it, and allowing it to to develop. So we'll have reached the last stage in history if in framing is allowed to go in the way that it seems to be going. And that's the supreme danger. Because, now again, just to put it in absolute contrast with Hegel, Hegel too thinks that we're going to reach the last stage of history. Right, we, and maybe maybe we've reached it now. But for Hegel, that's a great thing. History is the development and progress of us coming to understand everything in clearer and clearer terms, and so getting a better, uh, clearer, more articulate understanding of what we are and what everything is. And 
and in particular what political systems are and what appropriate kinds of states are. And reaching the last stage in history for Hegel is this great thing of finally coming clear on what the best way it is to be us, politically, socially, individually, and so on. For Heidegger, if we if we reach the last stage of history, it'll be, well, really disastrous. It'll be, in fact, the end of us rather than the pinnacle of us. Right? It'll be exactly the opposite of what Hegel thinks. It'll be the worst possible thing because we'll have gone from a rich historical being that has this constitutive relationship with being, with what it is to be anything at all, to a resource. To something that doesn't have any relationship whatsoever to being, uh, because, yeah, that doesn't have any relationship whatsoever to being. So we'll, we will have, um, no, we will have, if this is the last stage in history, we will have become, uh, we will no longer be hu- human being. We'll no longer be us. So that's a danger. That's a supreme danger. That's a greater danger than any other danger, any other understanding of being has ever uh, confronted. And yet, he says, on the other hand, and framing comes to pass for its part in the granting that lets man endure. Let's man endure. I mean, if, if, uh, if this really were the last stage of history, man wouldn't endure. There wouldn't be any more human beings, right? So, so, in framing comes to pass for its part in the granting that lets man endure. Granting is very important there. That's to say, in framing is, Heidegger wants to point out to you, an understanding of being, even if it hides both, it both hides itself as an understanding of being, and in blocking out the possibility of all other understandings of being, comes to hide the notion of an understanding of being altogether, even if it does all that disguising, nevertheless, it is a mode of revealing that's granted to us. That givenness of uh, modes of revealing is what lets man endure. And, And framing comes to pass... In the context of that, it's a mode of givenness. Uh, it, so it comes to pass for its part in the granting that lets man endure. And yet, as yet, that granting is as yet unexperienced, but perhaps more experienced in the future. That's to say, we don't now experience ourselves as challenged forth to order things, order resources economically and efficiently, even though we are. We don't experience that as something given to us. Uh, but maybe in the future we will. We'd better, he thinks, if we're going to be able to keep in framing from heading towards its final destin- destiny. Um, that he may be the one who is needed and used for the safekeeping of the coming to presence of truth. That's to say, only if you're able to experience uh, this mode of revealing as something that's given to you, will you be able to experience yourself as the kind of being that's got a special task, the task of preserving and safeguarding uh, the mo- a mode of being. So thus does the arising of the saving power appear. If it's possible for us to come to experience ourselves this way, 
as having this special relationship to being, the relationship of safeguarding it and preserving it. If that's possible, then, and we man, and the culture manages to embrace that possibility and live in such a way as to safeguard and preserve uh, the understanding of being, then we'll be headed towards the turning and we'll, and we'll turn into a different understanding of being. Now we have to put, we have to put, um, we have to put some flesh on this, right? I mean, this doesn't, it hardly makes any sense at all if you just talk at this level. So, but, but I, I want to say this is what, this is what we're heading towards. Uh, and he's preparing you for it here, uh, at the very end of the question concerning technology. Okay. Now, I want to spend, oh, I don't know, three, four pages on the first sentence of the turning, because <laughs> this sentence is so dense that I read it, the first time I read it, I thought it was just gibberish. <laughs> Probably you did too. I hope you did. I hope that made you go back and read it again and again and again. I spent about three hours on this sentence this morning. Okay, so so let's, now actually, as it turns out, I think this sentence is more or less review. <laughs> I think it's more or less review of what's what's already come in the question concerning technology. But let's take a look at it. So here's the sentence. The essence of, of enframing is that setting upon, gathered into itself, which entraps the truth of its own coming to presence with oblivion. Or maybe it's in oblivion. I think it's in oblivion. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's just a dative. Um, so I, with oblivion doesn't make any sense to me. I, I, I think maybe it's better. Or within. Let's do within. I don't have the German, but I talked with someone this morning who does. And uh, Okay, so let's say within oblivion. All right, so, well... <laughs> I, there's just there's a lot of things that we need to go go through in this sentence. I, I mean the first, the I, I feel okay with the. <laughs> I feel all right there, but after that it gets it gets dense. So now essence. There's a long footnote on on essence, which translates this German word Wesen. Uh, the footnote I. I found is not that bad, but I think we can do. I, I mean, it, it, I, I found it a little bit helpful. But we can do more. Uh, so now this is related to what to what Celine was asking about when she was asking about destining. We're talking here about the essence of enframing. We could talk about the essence of other ontological categories. In the footnote, they talk about the essence of Dasein or man, and they also talk about the essence of being. I think is that right? Yes. Um, so ontological categories like particular modes of revealing and framing, uh, particular special kinds of uh, beings or entities like human beings, and being itself, have essences. Now, you, you might have thought you understood what it was for something to have an essence. You might have thought, I remember essences. I remember Plato told us about those, and Aristotle talked about them. And essences... Uh, let's take the Platonic version of them. They live in this third realm. They're the things that really are. Remember the S, the form of the triangle. That's what really is. And all uh, uh, things that are in the realm of becoming rather than the realm of being 
are what they are in virtue of the fact that they've got some little chip of the of the form of the thing, uh, and they're less good and less important precisely because they um, they aren't constant. They're not universal. So the triangle, and they and they're not perfect. So the triangle that I draw on the board is necessarily, given that, especially given that I've drawn it, necessarily a bad triangle. It's not really a triangle, right? And it's only an approximation of a triangle. And it's an approximation to that universal, sort of eternal essence that, for Plato, exists in, in some kind of platonic heaven. In which we cavort when we're not when we're not around here, right? Lucky us. So, okay. So that you might have thought that's what an essence was. It's eternal and universal and perfect. Uh, and that's exactly not what an essence is for Heidegger. An essence for Heidegger is especially an essence of some ontological category like but, but an essence of anything, but it, the essence of being, the essence of man, the essence of a particular mode of revealing, these are dynamic rather than static. They are temporal rather than eternal. Uh, their uh, perfection isn't even sort of in the in the world of these things. Uh, their standards by means of which other uh, certain certain things get set, but they're not perfect versions of the triangle. Uh, they're dynamic. They're really dynamic processes. Now, Heidegger's talking about this a notion of essence um, back on back again in the question concerning technology on page thirty, and. It's actually pretty clear. It's sort of amazing. Uh, he's contrasting his view of what an essence is with Socrates and Plato. And in the middle of page 30, he says, Socrates and Plato already think the essence of something as what essence is. But actually, I mean, so he's going to give a slightly odd reading of, of Socrates and Plato um, as what essence is, what comes to presence in the sense of, but in the sense of what endures, what endures eternally. Right? The form of the triangle endures eternally. But they, here, and here he says, but they think what endures as what remains permanently, what's always the case, right? what doesn't exist in the temporal realm. And they find what endures permanently in what, as that which remains, tenaciously persists throughout all that happens. So in the realm of being, which is the for Plato the Platonic heaven in the realm of being, things are always in their perfect form. The form of triangles, the form of circles, the form of the good, they're always up there in Platonic heaven in their perfect form. That's where things most are what they are, and there they persist throughout whatever happens down here in the realm of becoming, right, in our paltry realm. Uh, and they find, he says, what endures permanently in what as that which remains. Oh, I just read that. That which remains, they discover in turn in the aspect, the eidos or the idea, for example, the idea house. That's the form of the house. Right? The form, platonic form, platonic ideas. The idea house displays what anything is that is fashioned as a house. Okay? Or the idea triangle. 
sort of manifests what anything is that's a triangle, and it's the perfect version of it. Particular, real, and possible houses, in contrast, those are the ones down here, not up in Platonic Heaven, are changing and transitory derivatives of the idea, and thus belong to what does not endure. Okay? So that's, that's actually pretty, except for the first sentence, a pretty traditional story uh, about, the, about um, Plato's forms. Uh, now he's going to start to contrast his story with that story. But it can never in any way be established that enduring is based solely on what Plato thinks as idea and Aristotle uh, thinks as the Tatianinai, which is that which any particular thing has always been, or what metaphysics in its most varied interpretations thinks as essence, essentia. He says, all, now, this is, now this is interesting, all essencing endures. That's to say, well, okay, well, well, I'll read the next sentence. But is enduring only permanent enduring? That's what Plato thinks. The forms endure permanently, eternally, maybe even outside of time. And Heidegger wants to say, essences endure, but they need, maybe they don't need only to endure in this permanent way. Does, for instance, the essence of technology and framing endure in the sense of the permanent enduring of an idea that hovers over everything technological, thus making it seem that by technology we mean some mythological abstraction of the sort that Plato thinks. So he says, when I'm talking about the essence of technology, is that what I'm talking about? And the answer is going to be no, of course. The way in which technology essences, the essence of technology, and framing, the background practices that challenge us forth to reveal everything in the mode of ordering as he, uh, in the most efficient and economical way, that, the way in which technology essences, lets itself be seen only from out of that permanent enduring in which in framing comes to pass as a destining of revealing. So what does that mean, a destining of revealing? This is what um, this is what uh, uh, Celine was asking about earlier. That's to say that the background practices that make up the understanding of being in the technological age themselves develop, themselves gather and change, themselves, insofar as they're manifest in a society, uh, endure, but not permanently and not statically, but endure in the sense that they develop themselves in some direction or another. And you've understood the essence of that understanding of being if you understand what it's heading towards, if you understand what, once it's worked itself out in the in the most extreme, in its most extreme form, it's going to end up. It's going to end up <coughs> revealing everything as. So that's so his notion of essence is, he says, of something. Uh, it's the way in which the background practices comport. In this case, the way in which the background practices gather and change themselves, so as to endure as the background practices of our technological age. 
Okay, there's, so there's something that these background practices have in common as they're changing their, namely they're heading towards the same kind of end. And what is that end? It's the end of blocking out all the other modes of revealing. The end of becoming a mode of revealing that gets rid of the possibility of taking seriously any of the other modes of revealing. So the idea is that there's a certain kind of work that needs to be done in anything enduring as what it is. And in particular, there's a certain kind of work that needs to be done in the background practices of our technological age enduring as those background practices uh, that's to say, there's, it's a process. There's a process that goes on. It's not a process that we're engaged in. It's a process that happens outside of us, because the, because the practices develop on their own, or gather on their own. But it's a process of holding on to, uh, what is, namely this set of background practices, instead of turning it into something else. So, Let's think about, let's try to think of, of this particular example. So, the background practices have to continually work to maintain themselves as the background practices that they are. They have to continually work to reassert themselves. They have to continually work, what's the other word I used? To reinforce themselves. Uh, and the way in which they reassert and reinforce themselves is their essence. So what is it? Um, to, and furthermore, this mechanism of self-reinforcing and self-asserting and maintaining, that mechanism is going to be different for different epochs in the understanding of being. So let's take two examples. Let's take the example of um, uh, of poiesis and the example of enframing. These are two different understandings of being. And these two different understandings of being have to have a mechanism within them in with respect to which they reinforce themselves, they continually maintain themselves, and they develop themselves towards some end. And it's got to be a different mechanism in the two cases. So we already know that the two that the two understandings of being show everything up as intelligible as anything differently, right? Uh, one as to be nurtured and brought forth—that's the poetic one—and one as um, sort of to be ordered and, and made efficient. So we know they they have different. Uh, they make things intelligible in different ways. But these background practices also have self-maintaining mechanisms that are different. So let's look at how it works. Um, Okay. So here, let's try the poetic mode first. What we're looking for is a characterization of this understanding of being that makes it clear why people living in it will act in such a way as to continue and maintain and preserve and work to preserve the understanding of being that it has. So here, let's take our our guy from last week. Let's take our our wheelwright. So here he is. Uh, Remember, we've got him uh, 
raised as an apprentice in the shop of a master wheelwright, recognizing that what he's doing when he's being raised as an apprentice in the shop of a master wheelwright is readying himself to encounter the world in the way that a wheelwright does and to allow the world to show to him possibilities of bringing forth things from it. That's what he's doing as an apprentice. right? He's developing himself. He's developing a sensitivity in himself. He's developing skills. He's developing the ability to see the world in a certain way as suggesting modes of developing it for very particular circumstances. For Farmer Joe's farm that's on a particular slope of a certain degree and so on. So there he is. He he goes out into the sunny woodland hills and uh, he walks along and what's it like for him to be walking along in the sunny woodland hills? He's not just taking a stroll. He's out there ready to be struck by the curve of the timber, ready to recognize a suggestion in the curve of the timber about what he can bring forth for from it for the very thing that Farmer Joe needs, given the slope of his, uh, given you know the fact that his wagon broke last week and he needs a new wheel or whatever. You know, I, it's hard to talk about it without knowing what these people do. <laughs> but but we don't need to know any of that actually. Yeah, I mean you can you you get it right. So he's what he's done is he's prepared himself to to respond to the suggestions that the world gives to him. So he's walking through the woods, and he's in a mode of waiting. He's open to being struck by a particular opportunity, right? And that's why he's there. He's there. He's not just ambling through the sunny woodland hills. He's there in order to be struck by an opportunity that presents himself from the particular curve of the timber. That's the way he. That's the way he describes it. So he is, and more importantly, he understands himself to be in a kind of mutual engagement with nature, with the domain that he works with. He's prepared himself. In fact, his whole life as a wheelwright is a matter of continually and in better ways preparing himself to be open to the possibilities that suggest themselves to him from without. That's to say, to be struck by the possibilities that nature presents to him when he's when he's out there uh, looking around. So he modifies himself in order to be responsive to the suggestions of nature. Nature, it seems to him, in his engagement with it, presents to him possibilities that are suitable for him, right? Uh, and, I mean, the particular, the things that jump out at him are the things that are suitable for him to bring forth. So nature, he experiences nature as, in a certain way, engaged with him also, suitable to him, appropriate to him, giving him suggestions about particular ways that he can develop it for given the needs and desires of the of the people that he lives with. 
So he's there in his mood of openness. But it's not just that he's there in his mood of openness. This part of what it is to live as a wheelwright in this poetic understanding of being is to recognize that it's crucial to who you are, that you develop, and it's crucial to what the world is, that you develop yourself, your skills, your sensitivity, your way of seeing the world, so as to allow for the world to show itself, to get to give you opportunities of the relevant sort. Okay. If the poetic understanding of being, then, is a way of being open to uh, possibilities of nurturing sort of ways of bringing forth out of the world nurturing and nurturing forth out of the world possibilities or particular particular items ways of bringing forth nurturing forth out of the world possible items then you can see that living in the poetic understanding of being will be a matter of understanding yourself and what you're up to so as to maintain that way of understanding what the world is like. You, in, insofar as you understand yourself as a wheelwright, you will be committed to this mutual engagement and openness to being struck by from without possibilities that you can develop. So that's a way that the poetic understanding of being has of maintaining itself. If a whole social culture, if a whole culture lives in that understanding of being, then the people in that culture are going to be, say, in the master-apprentice kind of tradition, they're going to recognize that what they're up to is developing themselves so as to be open to being responsive to the opportunities that the domain that they're engaged with offers them. Okay. That's a way of, that's a way that this, this background set of practices has of preserving itself. Okay. Has of maintaining itself. I think that the enframing understanding of being also has a way of maintaining itself. As an understanding of being, that's what it does. It maintains and governs. Those are the two things. Governing is, um, governing is a matter of showing forth things, anything as intelligible as anything. And maintaining itself is this, what we're talking about, sort of, Develop, gathering and developing and preserving that way of understanding what things are. Both other things and yourself. Uh, so think about how it works in the inframing, in the inframing understanding of being. I think it's going to be different. So here we are in the technological age. Now, I think uh, Heidegger has this little example of the guy who works for the paper industry. He walks, he walks through the forest and he sees every tree as the possibility of paper pulp. Right? That's, that's, what, that's the way he sees them. Okay? And there he is. He's, but you, so, let's, let, so let's suppose here we are, we're in the timber industry, say. Now we, we walk through the forest and it's no longer sunny woodland hills that we walk through. That's not the way we experience them. We experience them as a thicket of trees that are there to be cut down. And it doesn't, and they're there to be cut down in the most economical, most efficient way. 
their resources that are available to be ordered, they're available to be transported, they're available to be cut into standardized sizes, they're available to be interfit with other resources of a similar sort, they're available to be sold for the most, you know, in the most economical, in the most economical way. So here you are as a person in the timber industry. Your directive then is different from the directive that the wheelwright experiences himself to be living up to. His directive was to maintain this sense of being able to see the world in such a way as to allow yourself to be struck by what, given your skills, which you're constantly hoping to develop and get better at, uh, you can you can bring forth out of it in a nurturing way. The directive of the timber industry guy is different. It's to find more economical and more efficient ways to chop down trees, to transport them from one another, from one place to another, to cut them down to standardized sizes, to store them, and to sell them for the best price possible. That's your, that's the way you experience yourself, and that's the way you experience the world you're interacting with. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so the, indiv- the invisible hand is an interesting case. Though I take it that the point of the invisible hand is supposed to be that sooner or later we can make it visible, right? That if we get the better and better... I mean, I take it that the hope of economics is to get, at least in its traditional form, is to get better and better mathematical models of the way that markets move so that you can have better predictive possibilities. But I think the invisible hand may be like a platonic ideal in some sense, right? That like markets balance at equilibrium. And though we may get better and better through economic techniques to get into that point, that it's an ideal that exists uh, not because it actually has manifested itself. Well, that's right. The question is what the question is what we're heading towards. Not So the fact that we haven't quite gotten there yet Everyone will agree, especially this month, right? So, <laughs> the fact that we haven't haven't quite gotten there yet is is uh, is neither here nor there. The question is, how do we understand what we're heading towards? Now, uh, it may well be that maybe even I think David Brooks argues this morning <laughs> in, in the New York Times. It may well be that uh, that as a result of the current economic financial crisis. Uh, we're not going to be able to take seriously the idea that the rational models of, uh, of economics that have been so central to the study of economics for the last 80 years uh, are going to end up being able to do what, what we took them to be able to do. Maybe one re- way to read Alan Greenspan's comments a couple days ago is as his saying, you know, I thought, I thought that we could take these models seriously, but now I realize that that was a huge mistake. We can't. People aren't always acting in their own self-interest. 
people aren't always rational agents, and so the models aren't just the models aren't just sort of you know a little bit out of whack. Actually, they're based on faulty assumptions about the kind of beings that we are. So, uh, but I mean, I think it's an interesting issue. I don't think it's. I, I mean, I, what I, I do think that it's possible to be a business person of whatever sort and to have what Heidegger would consider the right kind of ontology. Uh, it would be a matter of constantly developing your own sensitivity to what the domain that you work in suggests as a possibility for you to bring forth out of it, or constantly, at any rate, maintaining a certain kind of openness to what's being given to you from, from without, and not just an openness that makes you feel as though you know, you're at the beck and call of something totally outside of your control, but an openness that you have a mutual engagement with. That, that might, I think that is a possibility. I think, in fact, uh, I know people who sort of work as business consultants trying to help business people sort of maintain, you know, develop this kind of ontology. So, I don't I mean, maybe, I don't know how successful it is, but at, at any rate, it's a possibility. It's certainly a possibility. Um, uh, but let's, let's do the, the classic and framing case first, because I think whether that possibility can become an actuality now is going is something that Heidegger is interested in, something that he's engaged in. But let's, so let's see exactly how this, the challenging forth of inframing maintains itself differently from the bringing forth of poiesis. Because that's the crucial thing. Uh, was there another question? or You were just stretching. You were. Oh, no, I, I was going to just sort of raise the point that I think an analogous case can be made for another ethics, the role of religion. It seems like, yeah. you know, to the same extent that rational economic models are seeking to kind of uncover the, the invisible hand, yeah. the purpose of religion was to kind of reach a greater knowledge of the divine and to establish a closer relationship with God. Yeah. Okay, good. So we'll let, let's see exactly how inframing works, and then we can get these problem cases on the on the table. Because his claim really is that inframing is special. You're not going to be. He thinks you're not going to be able to find this in any other epoch in the history of the West. Um, so let's see just what's special about it, and then and then we'll see uh, whether it's right to say that it's special. Uh, Okay, so we've got this directive, very different directive, as the timber industry person, the classical timber industry person. Uh, now, so what does this directive push me to do? It's the challenging fourth directive of inframing, and it pushes me to, well, what? Find more efficient cutting tools for cutting down the timber. Find more efficient and economical methods of transportation for bringing it from the forest to the storeroom. Find more efficient methods of measuring it so that I can chop it down into standardized sizes. Find more efficient and more economical ways of storing it so that I can, uh, so that I can, you know, leave it, uh, in the best way, you know, for the least cost and find, you know, the best kind of business plan for selling it. That's what I'm, that's what I feel myself, that's what I am challenged forth to do. Uh, well, so how does that work? I take it, this is the, I'm not sure about this move, so you can jump on me in, in just a second once I make it. Um, but I take it that the most efficient versions of each of these 
uh, of each of these practices is going to be the most general version. So if I want the most efficient method of cutting down the trees, I want to be able to use a tool that's a standardized tool that's good for cutting down trees, but maybe all all sorts of trees. Let's put it that way. Hard trees, soft trees, saplings. If I can find one tool that can do all of these things, then I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna be able to be more efficient in my in my way of going about it, and more economical in my way of going about the practice. If I can use standardized transportation resources for getting the logs from the forest to the storeroom, then that's going to cost me less, and it's going to be more and it's going to be more efficient. I can sort of outsource it to someone who's a real expert in that. And so it's going to be a better way of doing it. If I'm looking for, um, you know, the best business plan for selling the stuff, then I want a plan that's based on the most general principles that you can find that tell you um, what it is in virtue of which any business works best. Right? I want that's at least that's at least I think incipient in the in the idea that uh, in the idea of efficiency and economy. So what do these what do these practices do? Well, they seem insofar as they're general rather than particular, they seem to sort of drive me to stop paying attention to the particular domain that I'm interested in. It is the domain of trees, that's true. But insofar as I've got the most efficient most economical model for my business. It's a model that's based on the most general principles. And I could use it, I could use this model for any kind of energy resource industry. It wouldn't have to be timber, it could be oil, it wouldn't have to be oil, it could be natural gas, and so on and so forth. I could use it for any kind of industry. Maybe even I could use it for any industry whatsoever. The transportation of dry goods, it doesn't matter. I want the most general, most efficient method. And that's the method that's going to pull me away from paying attention to the particularities of the domain that I'm that I'm interested in. Yeah, give it a shot. Um, well, I don't know if that's true, because the most efficient way of, like, harvesting the trees probably requires some really special tree harvesting thing that is only designed to do that. Like, for instance, with McDonald's, they have their own brand of potato that is, like, a McDonald's potato, and it's really good at, make, at being a fry. Yeah. It's corrugated or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But so like that's yeah. very particular rather than general. Good. Okay, good. This is forcing me to, to worry about it. So I think that I think that's right. I think that um, it's very particular, but it's very particular um, because I've turned it into this very particular thing. I've, through the force of my will, created it as some very particular thing that serves, that plays the role better than uh, any other thing found in nature. So I think that's, I, I guess I do think that's right. I'm, I now have to worry about this. So, now, but I think that's still a version of the same story. So what you what you get here then is the desire to find so okay so good so now I need to back off I, I need to say it's not the generality of the thing that matters it's what it's the fact 
that I can, in the most efficient and economical way, create out of whole cloth the thing that the resource that will most economically and most efficiently serve the serve the purpose. Good. I think. Good. That may be. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, standardization uh, is a form of generality, in my view. So, so making a standard version of something is making it into a general re- rather than a particular. Well, but I think like you could say that like you you create different like sets of standards, and that's like the category of the professional that you oppose like out of the world. But it's and that's what makes those things special. But they're very particularistic sort of. Standards, let's say, like, thinking like they're all medicine. Like, you have, like, standardized medication, but, like, each person will get their own medication for, like, their own specific disease that they have. Yeah. Well, I, I, okay, I, th- I'm, I'm not against it. What, what, I mean, I think there's a vacillation in your comment between two notions of standard. There's the, there's the, there's what, what it is, what, what it is when something's is a standard for something, and there's there's the standard form of it. So one is a kind of norm, and the other is a kind of descriptive characterization. But but I don't think it matters. I think what's I think what's interesting about both these comments is that they force us to think about something that I think it's okay to think about, namely that the way the way the and framing practices maintain themselves is by driving me to uh, create um, my own standards, to create my own particular, most economical, most efficient, most optimized form of the resource. Now, I, I think that's all we need to say about it because I think that'll get, I think that'll get us what we need because what matters in that case is that um, when I'm doing that, when I'm being driven to create the most particular, most efficient, most optimized version of the resource, there's nothing in the world to which I'm responding uh, that I... that. Um, that, that's that in virtue of which I allow myself to bring it forth. I'm not struck by the curve of the timber. It's not the world suggesting something to me. It's me defining a project and defining goals for the project, standards of success for the project, and then going out and creating in the most efficient Economical and optimized way, the resource that will that will satisfy that will satisfy those goals. And what matters to me is that if that's what I'm driven to, then what I'm driven to is closing myself off to the very thing that the poetic guy was devoted to opening himself up to. Right. So the I. So what's really crucial here is that once you're caught up in the practice of being challenged and being driven forth to do these optimizing and, and resourceful things, once you're caught up in that practice, uh, 
your way of being caught up in that practice is self-preserving. It perpetuates itself. Once you're caught up in it, if what characterizes it is that it closes you off to other um, to, to other possibilities that might be suggested to you from without, if that's what its essence is, as Heidegger says, then you then this then this story explains how being caught up in that drive to create more efficient and more economical and more optimized resources has that effect. It has the effect of main, of closing you off to possibilities that could be suggested to you from outside of the projects and goals that you set yourself. That, yeah, okay. So where, I, I guess it's unclear to me whether you're making this claim and whether if you are higher justifying it. Okay. Where these, where these projects and goals are coming from. Mm. These are not being handed over. Good. Great. Being in the technological age, but they are, I guess my question is, what is the difference between the goals of the wheel, right? Yeah. Versus the modern day lumberjack or whatever. Great question. I, it's a hard question. Uh, I think what it shows is, that we are not all the way into the inframing understanding of being. So I think it's true that at the moment we think at any rate of the goals and the business plans and so on as creatively brought out of nowhere. I mean that's what the that's what the entrepreneurial genius is, you know, someone who who creatively out of nowhere, you know, comes up with some project or goal that they think is going to um, make some way of living more efficient. Make some way of living better by giving you a bigger television picture that's easier to see, that's clearer, that's cheaper, that uses components that, you know, never die, that, and so on and so forth, right? All of these, all of the, and, and in the technological age, I do think that the way we have, uh, thinking about, um, uh, new projects is as Projects that are created out of whole cloth by people, you know, in the, you know, in, in their garage, uh, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, just fool, fooling around in in this sort of creative genius mode. Now, I think that's not so. Uh, I think that's a, le- a leftover, a holdover from an earlier age. I think that's probably um, uh, a Nietzschean version of the will to power. That's the idea that we can be, as Heidegger says in, in the question concerning technology, lords of the earth. Lord of the earth. We can, through our own genius and willpower, create whatever it is we want to. Right? But I think he thinks that that... Oh, okay, no, well, no, no. Go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, I, think, I, I think there's decent evidence for it, and one of the things that makes me think about this, first of all, is the sentiment that you get both essays, in fact, a lot of Heidegger, that what he's getting at is for almost a kind of naturalistic humility in people. I mean, think of the discussion of the, you know, the windmill, for instance. There's a sense in which what's given to you, um, like seasonality and change, um, can't, you know, is not meant to be reorganized and reclassified, and that's where standing reserve becomes important. And I think the other place you see it is in his discussion of causality, right? Because Heidegger is very worried that we forget about the three other Aristotelian causes and the, the way in which we interpret them. 
Um, whether or not you agree with his reading of Aristotle, he does say that what's important about causality is not a motive force, you know, like making plans and making things happen. It's, in a sense, this notion of indebtedness. And, you know, when you look at a silver chalice, you're supposed to realize that not only one of the, the causes of the chalice wasn't only the maker, but there's a sense in which the static being of the chalice is important, right? Because one of the causes is the form. And, I mean, form isn't anything that really changes over time. Um, and one of the causes of the chalice is its, is its material, which is, I think, something you, really, you just can't change. And there's a sense in which in framing, um, you know, in addition to everything we've been talking about, I think is meant to... One of the problems is that it makes you forget about causes, in, you know, anything except the causes which which drive things to happen. Um, the causes that that we, you know, that Aristotle talks about, which are more static causes, are entirely dissipated um, in a framing which I think ties into and if you want to make the analogy between um, efficient causes and making projects, I think that actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, I see. Right, yeah. So I and. I, and I think, I mean, so just to tie it into this, this passage about being, being Lord of the earth, I think I misread it last time. Um, the, uh, where is the, on uh, 27. I think last time what I said, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to have the chance to recant, I think last time what I said was, that in the technological age, there are two different ways that you can um, you can understand yourself. I said either as Lord of the Earth or as a resource, but that neither of them has this sort of mutual engagement that you find in the poetic age. I think actually now um, exalting yourself to the posture of Lord of the Earth is what happens in what Heidegger calls the last metaphysical age, which is the Nietzschean age, where that's characterized by will to power. I think he thinks that naturally turns into uh, the technological age. But in the technological age, something told, something different happens. Namely, you come to understand yourself as resources. And we're not quite there yet. And the fact, but that's where we're heading. <laughs> and that's, yeah, exactly. And that's why we're at this crucial stage in history. Uh, if we're sort of working towards an understanding of, uh, of everything as a resource, would sort of the ultimate stage of that be a sort of total lordship of the earth? Like, you know, eventually McDonald's will just sort of cook up a, a French fry out of, out of pure molecules. That's the most efficient way to, to get a French fry, you just assemble like, all, the, all the little pieces. And that seems, you know, total mastery of nature. Uh, Unlike that large scale, seems to be the, the best way to, to take nature out of the picture and to, to stop it engaging with nature. So, in one sense, you have like you know the individual entrepreneur is seen as like the Lord of the Earth. But I think, I mean, I, I think that that's probably a better way to describe like the essence. Well, so I think um, to to get at what it's like for us to be resources. You, I think it's helpful actually to think of this of this Borgman example. So remember, Borgman says, uh, "Look, as technological devices get more and more complicated, we have a different relationship to them than we ever used to." I mean, you know, our my, my dad when he grew up fixed fixed cars. That's what that's what people did. You know, if you had a car, you fixed it. You know, it was like having a bicycle. You you don't have one without knowing how to fix it, right? 
that's not the way it is anymore. I mean, it, I suppose it could have been that way when I was growing up, but it wasn't for me. But nowadays, cars are so complicated that you couldn't. Very, very few people have that kind of that kind of relationship to them. Rather, and you're. Computer, I think, is probably a good example of that. In fact, when I was a kid, if you had a computer, you knew how to open it up and you knew how to take the pieces out and you didn't. And it's only 15 years, well, more than that, but whatever. It's a bit, it's a bit later and now you don't do it that way. I don't know. I wouldn't know how to open up my computer. And if I did, I wouldn't know what was in there because the things aren't, the things are so complicated and so difficult to engage with that you have to be a kind of expert in order to have that kind of relationship to them. So when that happens more and more, uh, devices, you you relate to devices differently. You don't relate to them the way the guy with the the wheelwright related to the to the timber with its curve. It doesn't suggest anything. The the device when it breaks down suggests that you throw it away, and that's about it. In fact, in fact, what happens is that you come to understand yourself as. Uh, something that's, uh, so to speak, enthralled to, enthralled to the devices rather than the other way around. And I do think, you know, I mean, that's a standard, that's a standard kind of, um, trope in, in, in our, in our culture. Uh, and I think that when that gets carried out to its conclusion, not its logical conclusion, but a teleological conclusion. When it gets carried out, then ultimately what you get is an understanding of yourself as a resource that's optimized by these more efficient things out, you know, that, that work on you. Uh, and maybe you get it, for instance, now in, in medicine, or, I mean, in healthcare. Uh, maybe you get it in athletics, where, you know, you have this ability to optimize your you know, physical capacities through certain kinds of technological interventions, so on. So I, did, I think it's not crazy to think that that that's a natural reading, quite uh, early reading, uh, but a natural reading of um, the direction of the culture. Oh, sorry, my first... No, go ahead, what, Billy. I was just asking, um, we're talking about how this destiny of a framing has a goal, which is kind of to cut off the other possibilities. Yeah. Um, does every understanding of being have its own kind of goal or teleological conclusion, or is it just in framing? They're all destinings, uh, so they all have their own sort of telos. They're all headed towards something. Uh, and in particular, they maintain themselves in such a way as to head towards that. And what we're asking about now is what's the difference in the way that the poetic understanding of being maintains itself it maintains itself as a kind of openness. People living within it feel drawn to um, develop themselves as beings that are open to possibilities suggested to them from without. And what I'm suggesting here is that in the inframing understanding of being, we feel drawn to close ourselves off to possibilities that are suggested to us from without so that the understanding of being, so that inframing as an understanding of being uh, ultimately is driven towards this characterization of itself as something that just tells you how things are rather than a mode of revealing to which you're open. That's the idea. Yeah. So, um, question about why framing is special. So you've been using words like economical, efficient, um, but I feel like maybe there's a little more to be said about them. Are we taking the, their definitions as what 
people in our technological age take it to be as, for instance, economical revenue minus cost is, if you maximize that, it being economical. Or is there something more to be said? So like revenue can be anything, cost can be anything. And that is what um, closes off all these other understandings of meaning. Is there like another bridge to be tied between notions of economic efficiency to the way that it frames the picture? Um, good. Uh, let me think about it for a second. I'm not sure. I, I think, uh, I guess I think ultimately, uh, well, I'm not sure. Is what? Tell me what's at stake. Do, do you have a sense for what's at stake in the question? I'm, try, I'm trying to think about what, what what would the difference between be between a yes and a no answer. So, I, so suppose we say yes. Um, it's not just the notion of economy that we've got now as revenue minus cost. It's a more generalized notion of economy that characterizes what we're ultimately driven to. Um, if we say that. I guess I'm. I guess I'm okay with it, uh, but if we say no, it's revenue. I, I I'm, just, I'm a little. I'm just lost. Tell me. Tell me what's at stake. Can you? Can you? What's driving you to ask the question? Um, so I'm, I'm seeing that there should be some kind of self-referential way in which practices perpetuate themselves. Good. And you, you're sort of making the point that it's by us trying to be economical. Efficient. I'm trying to understand what does being economical, what does being efficient mean? Is it mean that we have in our understanding of being now, or is there some sort of more deeper way of putting it or more? Okay, good. So I guess it means, I guess it is up for grabs what it means. I think we have an intuitive sense and we feel ourselves driven to it. It means, uh, in the first order intuitive sense, uh, not wasting time, not wasting money, not wasting resources, uh, using them uh, uh, in the most flexible way that you can so that, you know, if you've got, you know, I think of the, I don't know, sort of James Bond or MacGyver kind of character who can use anything, anything for anything. Um, this, so I take it that somehow that's what we feel ourselves driven towards in our... Uh, in our sort of lives, even our lives as students, our lives as business people, our lives as um, you know James Bond type spies, we, uh, every every way of life has a domain in which it feels driven to that. Uh, but the but the laws that characterize what it counts to be efficient or economical in each of those domains will probably be the same, I think. I think. I don't know if it... I think. Ultimately, in the end, the most efficient, uh, most general story we'll be able to tell about ourselves will be one that, uh, you know, that characterizes every domain and characterizes every practice in every domain. So insofar as economics is devoted to, you know, businesses only, it's not going to be able to do it. That's the best I can do. Um... Yeah, unless you want to follow up. I, I guess one, one step that I was thinking of is saying that laying in the presumption 
of being deficient is that anything can be had as an input or anything can be had as an output. And in that yeah. presupposition comes this leveling where you have no meaning. Yeah, well, I think that's ultimately what we're led to. I think that's right. That's the most general story. That's the most flexible story. I think um, I think that's the that's the sort of the telos. That's what we're headed towards. Um, now, uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's the telos. I don't think we're there yet. I think it's fortunate that we're not there yet. And it's fortunate that we're not there yet precisely, let's lay this out, precisely because if we were there, um, there wouldn't be anything left in us, in our culture, of the practice of being open to possibilities from without that can strike us and that we can help to develop. So that's to say that really would be the end point of history. We would... We would become stagnant. Uh, we would only be resources that were dealt with by things outside of us. And that we would no longer be human in that instance. So at that point, would we even have a piece like what Borgman says with this wheel, right? No, we wouldn't have anything like that. That would be completely gone. That's right. And that's the sense in which the current technological age is driven, drives out all other, the possibility of all other modes of Yeah. Yeah, right. We would be used, yeah, I don't know, as batteries or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It would be completely devoid of meaning. Uh, either there would be no humans, or humans would be used in a way that was no different from the way any other kind of device was used. Um, but the but the big thing is, I mean, I don't know what it would look like. It would. It's we're not meant to know what it would look like. What we're meant to know is that the danger, the supreme danger, is that we could get stuck in, be driven to, uh, be driven to a way of being closed off from everything that's the essence of us. So we could be driven to this way of being, no longer being open in any way to being struck by things from outside of us uh, at all. Right. So when you say resources dealt with by things outside of us, you just mean other resources. Yeah. Well, or other right technological devices or something. Yeah. Yeah. Roughly. I mean, it's this is not it's not a it's not clear to me that Heidegger has a clear vision of what the endpoint is, other than that we would no longer understand ourselves as um, in any in any way that's like what's good about the way the wheelwright understands himself. Right. It wouldn't be possible for us at this end point of history to walk among the sunny woodland hills in this mood of being open to being struck by a certain way of developing a possibility. That's that 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 wouldn't be a, that wouldn't be a possibility anymore at the end point of inframing, and we're and and we're in danger of its of its no longer being a possibility. And that's the supreme danger. It's quite—I mean, as we say it, it's quite bleak. So maybe we should go on to the saving possibility. 
I mean, because... Yeah, okay. Well, let, let's try that. Let's go on to the saving possibility. Because he thinks that this extreme danger is also... Um, which is, by the way, in, in terms of the first sentence, the danger of the essence of enframing... Which is the danger of enframing and trapping the truth of its own coming to presence within oblivion. Right? That means enframing no longer being recognizable to us as a mode of revealing. That's the oblivion. Entrapped within oblivion. Totally closed. And when it's entrapped within oblivion, we understand it as obvious and obviously and naturally true that everything is resources to be used in these flexible ways. Uh, and in understanding it to be obviously and naturally true, we close ourselves off to the possibility that any other modes of revealing are, are available. And in fact, we close ourselves off to the possibility that enframing is itself a mode of revealing. Okay, so what happens? How do we get out of it? Let's, let's turn um, to happier places. So... Let's turn to page 41. It's funny, I thought I had that in here. Okay. Uh, how is the turning going to happen, if it's going to happen? Well, um, the danger is that in framing hides itself as a mode of revealing... Yet, now in the middle of 41, in the danger there holds sway this turning about, uh, let's see, the, sorry, the first full paragraph of 41. The coming to presence of enframing is the danger, because enframing hides itself as a mode of revealing. As the danger, being turns about into the oblivion of its coming to presence. That's what enframing does. The oblivion of its coming to presence is you're no longer recognizing it as something that's given to you from without. It turns away from this coming to presence and in that way simultaneously turns counter to the truth of its coming to presence. In the danger, there holds sway. This turning, um, this turning about, not yet thought on. So we haven't noticed this yet, but in this danger uh, of um, in framing hiding itself as a mode of revealing, there's uh, there's the possibility of this turning. In the coming to presence of the danger, there conceals itself, therefore, the possibility of a turning in which the oblivion belonging to the coming to presence of being will so turn itself that with this turning, the truth of the coming to presence of being will expressly turn in into whatever it is. So somehow, uh, if the danger develops itself in a particular way, then it'll no longer be a danger, but a saving power. So we need to figure out what the way is that it needs to develop itself. Probably this turning, the turning of the oblivion of being into the safekeeping belonging to the coming to presence of being, that's to say, the turning of the people in the culture away from the sense that... uh, this mode of revealing isn't a mode of revealing at all, but it's just the way things are, to the sense that, as with the Wainwright, uh, you've constantly got to develop yourself and maintain a certain kind of openness to possibilities that are struck, that strike you from without. That's the safekeeping belonging to the coming to presence of being. 
yet probably this turning will finally come to pass only when the danger which is in its concealed essence ever susceptible of turning first comes expressly to light as the danger that it is he really this is really I'm not a big fan of underlining and 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 italicizing but if you were going to do it this is where you would do it you would underline the as the crucial thing for him is uh, that the possibility of recognizing the danger as a danger. Um, perhaps we stand already in the shadow cast ahead. We have to understand that, but, but we will in just a second. Perhaps we stand already in the shadow cast ahead by the advent of this turning. Maybe, maybe it's already on the horizon. If Heidegger has anything to do with it, uh, he thinks it will. It is already on the horizon. When and how it will come to pass after the manner of a destining, no one knows. Nor is it necessary that we know. A knowledge of this kind would even be the most ruinous for man. Because his essence, that's man's essence, that's what it is to be a human being, is to be the one who waits the one who's open to new possibilities, the one who attends upon the coming to presence of being in that in thinking he guards it. So what what we need to develop, in fact, what our essence is, is this being open to possibilities available in the culture from, he thinks, the history of the culture uh, that are possibilities of revealing uh, new modes, new ways of understanding and making intelligible things as they are. That's what that's what it is. That's what our essence is. We have to be o- we have to be open to this. And framing is the most dangerous because it hides that fact about us, and uh, it will become the saving power when we can learn to see that danger as a danger. So he goes on and says this kind of thing. What happens there where the danger comes to pass as the danger and is thus for the first time unconcealedly danger? So so the move is to say, look, and framing is the most serious danger of all. Why is it the most serious danger of all? Well, it's the most serious danger of all, not only because it hides itself as a mode of revealing, every mode of revealing does that, but it hides that there are modes of revealing. That's what it does. In the poetic mode, you when you lived and understood yourself to be living and developing the possibility of living in an openness to what's given to you from without... You weren't living in such a way as to hide that there are modes of revealing. You were understanding yourself as developing yourself so as to be receptive to them. But in the current technological age, it's not only that the current mode of revealing is hidden, it's that that there are modes of revealing is hidden. That's the danger. If you could see that danger as a danger, though, it would be the saving power. What does that mean? Well, the the danger is that uh, in framing hides that there are modes of revealing. Or the danger is that in framing is the mode of revealing, the very final one, that hides that there are modes of revealing. So if you could see the danger as a danger, what would you see? Well, you would see uh, in framing as 
that mode of revealing that hides that there are other modes of revealing. So if you see the danger as a danger, it's totally turned upside down. It's no longer dangerous. It was dangerous because it hid that there were from you the possibility, the fact that there were modes of revealing. But when you see it as a danger, you see it as the mode of revealing that does that. So it no longer hides that there are modes of revealing. That's what he's saying. He says, if we now, uh, if we think these words, the Hölderlin words, still more essentially than the poet sang them, if we follow them in thought as far as they go, they say, where the danger is as the danger, there the saving power is already thriving also. What we need to be saved from is this awful possibility to be totally closed off from openness to modes of revealing. If we could learn to understand in framing as the mode of revealing that's dangerous because it closes us off to the possibility that there are modes of revealing, then recognizing that would itself be save us from, from the danger that in framing that in framing holds within itself. So the latter, uh the saving power, does not appear incidentally. The saving power is not secondary to the danger. The self-same danger is when it is as the danger, there he does use the italics, the saving power. The danger is the saving power in as much as it brings the saving power out of its, the danger's concealed essence that is ever susceptible of turning. The concealed essence is that in framing is a mode of revealing. That's what's concealed. It's concealed that there are any modes of revealing at all, and in particular that this is one of them. Uh, the saving power is... Uh, Bringing this out, that this has, that this is the essence that's concealed. Okay, that's the crucial move that allows you to get from this what he calls entrapping within oblivion, right? This totally being closed off to the possibility that there's anything to be open to at all, to being turned around so that you understand not only that there are modes of revealing, but in understanding anything as a mode of revealing, you open yourself up to the possibility that there might be others. And how do you do that, does Heidegger think? Heidegger actually thinks that the thinker has a crucial role to play. Uh, Heidegger thinks that the job of the thinker is the job of going through the history of being, identifying all these different understandings of being, so that you can be sensitive to the ways in which they're still at work, albeit only marginally, in the current in the current epoch, in the current uh, in the current um, in the current age. Right. So all, the fact that we're a historical culture, according to Heidegger, um, has to do with the fact that the way our current understanding of being still contains our current practices still contain remnants of prior understandings of being. We have remnants of the nurturing understanding of being, maybe in parenting, say. right? Maybe if, if there's any place where it's not just okay, but you sort of would feel bad if you weren't involved in a nurturing relation to something, it's got to be in parenting, right? And in so, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's a difficult issue. I think that there's quite a lot of temptation... Uh, in that domain, 
also to be driven towards, you know, treating your child as a resource that's meant to be efficiently optimized. And, you know, who's got maybe, uh, you know, who's got uh, skills of the relevant sorts and has got a lot of them and to the best degree possible and so on and so forth. And to the, and I think sometimes I'm not, I'm struggling with this as you can tell, but so, so that, but I think, I think I hear some people say that one of the ways that this expresses itself is that when they're just playing with their child to no particular end, not teaching them something or not making them better in some domain, when they're just playing with their child, they feel a little bit guilty. After all, this is time they could have been using to, you know, help the child understand that, you know, the best way to act in this situation is blah, blah, blah. Right? So if you feel guilty in those kinds of circumstances that aren't, you know, efficient ways of dealing with your child, that's an indication that even in that domain, even in that domain, the technological understanding of being is encroaching. But still, nevertheless, I think a natural place to look for the poetic understanding of being, bringing forth something that you see to be there in a nurturing way, is in, is in parenthood. But there might, you know, and and there may be. I think it would be. It's an interesting question. In what actual areas of our lives are previous understandings of being still relevant? I mean, I think. Uh, uh, or still, or still sensed. Are we still open to them? I think that uh, Charles Spinoza, when he was here, gave an interesting example of what it's like for us to walk into a cathedral, even the most, you know, sort of non-religious of us. When we walk into a cathedral, feel a certain sense of something, a sense of, for instance, how it's appropriate to act. Uh, a sense that uh, reverence and awe is the appropriate mood to be in. And just walking into the building gives you that sense. And there are very few places, there, there are other places, I think, in our world where automatically by walking into the place you are, are brought into that mood. But I think that's maybe a place where uh, something, some remnant of the medieval Judeo-Christian mode of understanding, uh, mode of revealing, is still around as a marginal practice for everyone in the culture, for almost everyone in the culture, religious or not, and so on. So Heidegger thinks the thinker's job is to go through the, the understanding, the history of being, and identify the different understandings of being so that we can be open to the ways in which they're still at play in our culture, even if only very marginally, even if the goal of enframing is to stamp them out and to close us off to them as modes of revealing. But when the thinker does that, the thinker is, um, is giving us a resource that if the culture is in the right situation and it's prepared and it's ready, then there can be, in an instant practically, in a, um, in, in he says uh, it happens very very quickly uh, when when the turn on forty four when the turning comes to pass in the danger this can happen uh, only without mediation there's nothing that happens in between it just all of a sudden you go from one the culture goes from one understanding of being to the next um, the turning of the danger comes to pass suddenly uh, the essence of being suddenly clears itself and lights up. 
And all of a sudden, there's some new understanding of being that takes root in the culture. Uh, that's the way the turning happens. The thinker can prepare the way. I, I tried a, an example. I don't know if we'll see. We'll see if this works. Has anyone ever seen this this picture before? Okay, if you've seen this picture, then it doesn't count. But if you haven't seen this picture, um, then maybe it'll happen. How many people have never seen this picture? Okay. How are you supposed to hold it? I forget. Uh, I mean, I, it's. I see. Well, I won't. I won't show you that because that that's cheating. <laughs> okay, everyone's everyone's got a copy of this picture. Okay, so he, this is what I think Heidegger thinks the role of the thinker is. So <laughs> I hope it's all clear now. We'll just <laughs> no. I, I, what, what I'm about to show you is what I think Heidegger thinks the role of the thinker is. So there you are. You're in a culture. You've got a certain understanding of being, uh, and the thinker is trying to open you up to the possibility of other understandings of being by naming them. He says that explicitly, that uh, what the thinker does is name these understandings. And keep, keep looking, it's okay. You know. <laughs> is the, the thinker um, names these understandings of being. Where does he say that? Naming. Yes, insight into that which is, this names the constellation and the essence of being. So the thinker is who's involved in the coming to pass of the restorative surmounting of the destining of being, the surmounting of enframing, is involved, I think, by naming these other modes of revealing, telling you about them, as telling the culture about them, so that the culture can start to get the sense that there's something they need to try to open themselves up to. Then it's a matter of waiting, but the thinker can do some things. The thinker can point stuff out. So your experience, if you haven't seen what this picture is yet, your experience is the experience of waiting. Waiting to, for it to come in, come clear. Waiting for all of a sudden you to, to get the sense that, ah, that's what we're about. That's what we can grab onto. And the thinker does it by saying, first, hold it this way. <laughs> okay. With, uh, let's see, now it's important, the very dark stuff is at the top on the left, that's it, okay? And then notice that this is a picture of a Dalmatian dog with black and white spots, and his nose, he's in a kind of forest that's got lots of shadows, his mouth is on the ground, he's licking something or eating it, and he's got one leg here, another leg here, another leg here, this is his back coming into focus for any of you? Okay. Everyone got it. Okay. Nice. I'm proud of But see, if enough people get it, we can all help Adam. <laughs> and we'll bring him along. And the practices will gather. Okay. Okay. So, and when, when you get it, it's a homework assignment now. <laughs> when you get it, it, com- it comes, it comes as an insight that comes suddenly. You all of a sudden experience, you get a gestalt shift. 
I think this gestalt shift is Heidegger's characterization of what happens when you move from one understanding of being to another. The thinker can't make it happen, but the thinker can prepare a culture for it to happen by naming the understanding of being that they're in, by naming the possible new understandings of being, and by encouraging them to develop the practice of being open to these new possibilities. That's the, that's the role that the thinking power has, the thinking, the thinker has in, um, turning the danger of enframing into a save, into a saving power. Yes and then. Just to be clear. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, the ways of being that the thinker is going to be listing are old ones, right? Historical so, ones, yeah. And so it's, it's not necessarily that we'll be returning to one of those. It's just that's that right. the fact of realizing that they are, sort of the, the act of, of sort of realizing that there can be multiple ones will pave the way for a new one that the thinker hasn't gone. Yes, that's right. But the new one will be related to the old ones in important and interesting ways. Now, in what those ways, what those ways are, we can't tell until we've gone through the transformation. Uh, but insofar as we're a historical culture, it will be a matter of taking up some range of these marginal practices and um, and uh, bringing them to the center, so that we have a new understanding of being organized around them. When. I think it's a similar concern about, okay. predi- about prediction, about how far you can go and think that something's related to something else without actually saying anything about, like, it's uh-huh. this. Because presumably, I mean, this is speaking like very abstractly, I might be wrong. If you say that, well, the, the epoch coming up is, is going to be, it's not it's not going to be any of these, you're already making some sort of prediction. And then uh-huh. you say it's, it's going to be related in a certain way, that rules out at least some, like, very far off, you know. Well, to say that we're a historical culture means that we're not going to invent it out of whole cloth. So he is committed to that. Um, that's part of his metaphysical view about the way the practices can work. Right? That that that's, uh, they can gather in different ways and you can create some new ones, but the new ones that it's possible for you to create are going to be constrained. Yeah, yeah. So, so the worry is just that you can call that prediction in some way. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, predi- it's prediction sort of without substance. I mean, it tells you the form of the thing without telling you anything about its details. So, and that's right. And in fact, I think Heidegger thinks that, Heidegger thinks that there are at least two possible ways that it can happen for us. One is a kind of polytheistic way and the other is a monotheistic way. And he seems to go back and forth between these both in the turning and in the question concerning technology. So in the turning on page 47, he says, only when man, in the disclosing coming to pass of the insight by which he himself is beheld, renounces human self-will. That's what that's what you have, the culture has to do. Renounce human self-will in favor of a kind of openness to possibilities striking you. When you renounce human self-will, but possibilities that you've prepared yourself for being struck by, and been prepared by thinkers, you know, for being struck by, uh, and, and projects himself toward that insight away from himself, only then does he correspond in his essence to the claim of that insight. That's to say, only then do you become open to resonating with or being receptive to the possibilities that are there waiting to be, waiting to give themselves to you in the culture. In thus corresponding, man is gathered into his own, eignet, man most becomes himself, 
because you become you get the right relation to being. This is the relation of, of preparing yourself to be open to the pract- to, to being struck by the practices. That's what it is to safeguard being, to preserve being. Uh, in thus corresponding man is gathered into his own that he within the safeguarded element of world may as the mortal look out toward the divine. That's one of the options. That's a that's a very cryptic reference to a paper that we'll read later called The Thing, um, where Heidegger dis, uh, describes the possibility of things thinging, which are something like very local events, like the event of a celebratory dinner, in which everything comes to matter, people understand their roles in the context of the celebratory dinner, they're brought out in their best way in those roles, everything shines, but it only happens for a moment, and the way that it happens in that context need not be related to the way it happens in some other context. So, there, he, in, in the Thing essay, he talks about uh, the fourfold, earth and sky, mortals and divinities. And that's one characterization of the way in which um, we can be open in a local context to, uh, to things given to us from without. The other way, otherwise, he says, um, not, that's to say, otherwise... You won't get this local fourfold thing, which is really a polytheistic thing. One god shines at one celebratory dinner, at you know another occasion a totally different god shines, and people take on totally different roles, and there's no way to reconcile them. But the other case is a more unified case. For the god, in that case you get a god that is uh, a being... Uh, and stands as a being within being, and it's coming to presence, which brings itself disclosingly to pass out of the worlding of world. That's a work of art working. That's a monotheistic version, where everything, where one work of art, when it's working, makes sense of what it is for everything to be in a unified way, and it, and, and a sort of uh, relatively stable way. And he's basically saying, uh, look, I don't know what's going to happen. We could go into polytheism, we could go into a different kind of monotheism organized around a different kind of work of art. Uh, all, and I don't know, I have no idea. All I can do is point out to you what the different modes of revealing have been. I can point out to you that the mode of revealing we're in now is a mode of revealing and I can encourage us as a culture to be open to waiting to, for that moment of insight when all of a sudden it becomes clear what we're up to and what we're about so that we can that we can develop it. Adam is going to lead the way. I can tell. <laughs> okay, so next time we will move on to the essay What Are, what Are Poets For?